Welcome to Podopticon. I'm Randall Hendrickson. We're here to talk about Elizabeth Cohen's excellent book, The Political Value of Time, Citizenship, Duration, and Democratic Justice. Using the lens of time to look at the political world reveals quite a bit, as I think you'll hear from the conversation with Cohen. The big takeaway from the book, maybe, is that you're not getting a complete picture of a nation's politics until you've understood that time is not neutral and does not work the same for everyone. Now, what do I mean by that? How can time move differently or be worth different amounts depending on who you are? When Cohen talks about the value of time, she's using a concept called commensurability. The idea that one thing, say two months in jail, is equal in value to another thing, in this case maybe the hassle of having your building vandalized. Or, for a more everyday example, each time you get paid for your time or pay someone else for theirs, you're assigning a value to that time. We're used to seeing different people getting different wages, to having different values assigned to their time, But Cohen suggests that it's not just the labor market that values people's time differently, but also our political institutions and public services, which turns out to raise big issues, big problems for a liberal democracy. We like to think of ourselves as living in a free and equal society. Among other things, it seems that that should mean that I am free as the next guy to dispense with my time as I see fit. But if some of us get to assign value to our own time, and also to other people's, others among us are stuck with the value that's handed down to us. Does this not at the very least suggest that once we take the value of time into consideration, we see different scales of freedom and equality at work for different people within a liberal democracy? And besides, who are these people who get to decide how much our time is worth? When did we give them such an immense power over us? And might we wrest some of that power back? Or to put it more generally, maybe more mildly, might we rethink the valuation of time such that it works toward a more equal justice? These are the sorts of big questions that Cohen's book raises. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Elizabeth Cohen, welcome to Podopticon. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to finally be able to record this podcast. We've been trying for a while. Oh, it's great. I'm so glad you're here. Uh, And we are here to talk about your book, The Political Value of Time, Citizenship, Duration, and Democratic Justice. The book is eye-opening and is an excellent example, I think, of how political theory and policy analysis might intersect. Um, Now, As part of the sort of ground-clearing work at the beginning of the book, you're careful to distinguish the types, the type rather, of time you're talking about. The time you're talking about, you say, refers to precise durations using clocks and calendars. So time here is a means of commensuration in politics, you say. Um, And my, my first question is simply, what do you mean by means of commensuration? Sure. Um, So, um... I kind of move us along to the idea of commensuration, which is something you do um, when you've got numbers. So the the setup is we're talking about scientific time, clock time, calendar time, because we use numbers to identify that kind of time, as opposed to saying something like, um, it's spring, or, um, you know, I'm, you know, middle-aged or something, you know, these (laughs) sorts of things, which are not precise 
um, uh, quantities of time or moments in time that we identify with numbers. And commensuration is this process that we engage in whereby um, we kind of take things that it would be difficult um, to make equivalent or trade back and forth. Um, and we find a way to identify them using common units of measurement so that we can make them equivalent. So um, if we say that like um, we're going to make people, you know, wait six weeks to get tickets mm -hmm. to some hot show this summer, like um, some festival or something. Um, and that's just like the amount of time you're going to have to wait. We're kind of assigning a value. Like you, you really wanted enough to wait six weeks for it. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas we couldn't have measured the wanting of the thing very well before because like people express their desires in very, very, very different and personal ways. Right. Now that's fascinating and a good way to begin. Um, so you're talking about particular demarcations of times, and we, we know other kinds of demarcations, like geographical boundaries. Poland is Poland, Russia is Russia. We, we, we know these things by the, the shape, so to speak, of, of, of the nation we're, we're talking about. Um, but what about temporal boundaries? You know, um, outside of your book, I'm not sure that I've even seen temporal boundaries discussed. Um, so so uh, what's an example of such a thing? Um, well, I hope you didn't see it discussed elsewhere because I felt like <laughs> I made an original contribution you there. Did. That's oh, what no. we're getting to. <laughs> so I, you know, I started thinking about temporal boundaries because I do a lot of work on immigration, immigration enforcement, um, and free movement. And, you know, if anybody who deals with immigration law knows that um, visas expire. Right. And I was really struck by the idea that in the United States, lots of people come with um, short-term visas, right? Like they're allowed to stay for a few mm -hmm. months or a year, a couple of years, depending on the nature of the visa. And um, people overstay their visas. Some people do it deliberately. Some people do it because there's an emergency. Some people do it because like the bureaucracy of dealing with visas is actually incredibly complicated and accidents happen all, like even immigration lawyers themselves and um, uh, visa issuing agencies make mistakes. But like when that happens, you become undocumented. And so the border essentially passes over you in the moment that the visa expires. It just, all of a sudden you're outside politically in a way that you weren't before. And I thought, well, that's that's a border, right? Because now you're outside the polity. Right. And and then I, I started digging into that and realizing like, oh, you just described, you know, we know the shape of Russia or Poland, which mm -hmm. is arguable at this particular <laughs> moment in time. I know, those are bad examples. <laughs> Leaving aside questions about the actual um, territorial boundaries of those countries no sovereignty is ever established without reference to a moment when the establishment occurs. And you have to identify that moment of establishment. There's no, there's no sovereignty without it because you would simply be saying that um, a nation state always existed and nobody believes that any nation state has always a nation, maybe not a state. Right. So there is a point before which the country wasn't a country, the state wasn't a state, it wasn't recognized. And that's consequential in ways, you know, we can talk about if you want to, but it has yeah. a lot of meaning to be 
in the place at the right time or not. Yeah, I mean, one way you've put that in the book is like, it doesn't just matter who you are, it matters when you are. Um, this is this is taking it from nations to individuals, but um, we've already talked about visas. So yeah, I think I think you know let's let's talk about how this finds its various iterations and yeah. political life. Of yeah, so I I like I was finishing up my first book when I, which is on the subject of citizenship, um, mm -hmm. and I I started like spending some time with this really like well known citizenship law case in British common law called Calvin's case mm -hmm. and Calvin's case is like is this group of people who go looking for answers about whether they're subjects of the king and the reason there's a question about whether they're subjects of the king is because um, not too long prior the English and Scottish thrones had united and that essentially created a new sovereign where um, Two had existed, now there's one, and it's new, it didn't exist prior. And everybody born after the uniting of these thrones mm -hmm. is born naturally into the allegiance of the king. But everybody born before had been born into the allegiance of something that didn't exist anymore and could not be born into the allegiance of something that hadn't existed when they were born. So right. um, they're ruled not subject to the king because you can't be a natural born subject of something that didn't exist when you were born. And, um, you know, from this we get an idea of being a natural born subject, first of all, which is extremely important uh -huh. even to the way we think about natural born citizens now. But also we start to get the sense that, like, we might need to naturalize, which is also relatively new. Mm. Um, that we might, you know, have created a sticky situation there with all kinds of consequences. And, um, in order to get around this, these unforeseen <laughs> circumstances that were really bad for some people, you have to be able to make them natural-born um, subjects. Yeah, to naturalize. I mean, you know, I had prior to this, I'd never thought of naturalization in, in any kind of uh, deep way. And but that's precisely what, what what's what's going on, I guess. I mean, that, that's very interesting. Um, so moving along, one of the main arguments of the book, of course, is that durational time is assigned a value in politics. Um, so I think the first question that would come to anyone's mind is, um, so who, who does the valuing? What or who sets the value of time? Um, I, w I would say like every valuation of time is negotiated among people who have some power. And so... Um, we are, first of all, we're constantly getting signals about the value of our time. I gave the example of being compelled to wait for popular um, concert mm -hmm. tickets. Mm -hmm. But we wait for all kinds of things. And economists, like long ago, started using either getting somewhere early for something or waiting for something, but particularly getting there on time, like to line up for something as a proxy for a person valuing the thing. But I, I in the process of writing the book came to observe that the the setting of waiting periods for things particularly fundamental rights actually involves a lot of explicit discussion about what that time in which people are waiting represents mm -hmm. and we could be talking about um, 
a waiting period to acquire some rights. So like children are not born with all the rights of citizens. They acquire those rights upon reaching usually, I mean, age 18 for some rights. We have, mm -hmm. you know, we, we split up, we unbundle them a little bit. Um, but we might be talking also about waiting to um, get your rights back if you're incarcerated and um, not permitted to move freely. A lot of rights are denied to people who are being um, incarcerated by the state. So, you know, there's all kinds of discussions in each of these instances, the sentencing literature, um, the naturalization literature, the age of consent literature, about what's going on in that time. And what's going on are many things. We don't actually agree on what those things are, but they generally um, fa fall into categories of things like character development, relationship building, um, reflection, deliberation, you know, sort the things that are fundamental to our development as citizens and members of a polity. And, and that has value. Right, right. So now these demarcations by time do seem to make sense in some way, right? And they, they do seem at first glance less arbitrary and more impartial than other um, devised standards. You know, as far as making sense goes, it seems uh, more reasonable to come to a number like age 18 to mark maturity, for instance. One's ready to vote at 18, ready to drink at 21, ready to retire at 65 or whatever. Um, they seem less strange than devising some test or another to say whether one has reached maturity or civic virtue or you know any of these things that you kind of touch on in the book. Um, and time also seems scientific because it's measured scientifically, which makes it also seem impartial or even egalitarian. Um, but not so fast, you say. Like uh, that—that's much of the book right there. You know that—that's sort of not so fast. It, you know, showing that the the matter is rather more complicated, and it's urgent because this ends up being a question about justice. So big stuff. Uh, and if you'll pardon the long wind up here, let me just start with the first part and ask: um, What's the relationship between the durational time you talk about and liberal democracy and its and its concerns? Yeah. So. You know, I think when we're deciding to set a moment, like a deadline, or here's when the nation really, you know, was founded, here's when we started, um, in some senses, it's so ingrained in us to expect these things, like a, a date of founding, or mm -hmm. uh, our taxes were due. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Uh, or the filing was due <laughs> um, recently. Like, that... And, it, you know, when I was presenting this early on, I would just get people saying, like, well, we have to. Like, what other way is there to think about these things? And that's not actually true, even though we do expect it. Um, and, in fact, like, deadlines are very arbitrary. So by midnight last night, if you didn't e-file or ask for an extension, you're, like, out of compliance. But that moment, <laughs> there's nothing special about that moment except somebody chose it. So somebody chose it. Yeah, that that that's somewhat arbitrary. Um, you know, quantities. We've got other types of deadlines. The age of consent is essentially a countdown deadline because you have a certain amount of time you have to wait, and it starts when you're born, and you count down until you get it. Yeah. That's a little less arbitrary because it's not one single moment. You can actually say something about what happens in the space uh -huh. of. 18 years, even five years or three years, like mm -hmm. we, we have a sense that things happen. 
then. So um, we might be able to say that like there's more opportunity for the kinds of things we believe in in the liberal democracy, the principles we're committed to in once we move away from that pure principle of a deadline to like a period of time. And then if we really want to be serious about this, we don't just pick two moments in time, we pick something that recurs. So like mm -hmm. I use elections as an example of a recurring deadline where we will remake decisions and rethink them and learn from mistakes. Haha, -ha, maybe <laughs> it's possible to learn from our mistakes. And the idea is that we should be learning from our mistakes and also holding people who we put into power as our representatives accountable for what they have done with that um, power. And that's, you know, pretty, that's pretty um, fundamental to being democratic. So that's kind of how I'm thinking about how yeah. time, we can start to make time um, liberal democratic. Um, it, another way to think about it, if you'll let me um, just add one, add one thing here, is before we were transacting over quantities of time, we were doing things that were definitely squarely um, antithetical to liberal democracy. So I'll take punishment as an example. Mm. Um, it's considered quite modern and was originally designed as a, as a you know humane measure to punish people using units of time and incarcerating them. Mm -hmm. That leaving aside the fact that that promise of being more humane was went unfulfilled. Right. Um, before that, punishment. I mean, often was capital punishment, and not just like any old capital punishment, but really people sat around and thought up grotesque examples of, or gr grotesque methods for really inflicting pain on people. We took units of pain rather than units of time yeah. as a way of punishing. So it, I read more than I care to reveal about punishment to write mm -hmm. that section. Mm -hmm. And um, I think the one example that made it into the book was we, uh, uh, not we, but um, in the past, Romans would um, have people swallow molten metal which oh, no. or killed them but not quickly yeah um now we punish people in units of time because that's kind of very scientific and neat and we can make different you know commensurate um between different crimes and between whatever it is we think is going on in the punishing process um or in the incarceration process um and and um human development so, yeah. yeah, that's ostensibly, um, it is able, we are able to state that in language that is friendly to liberal democracy, even if our practices leave very, very much to be desired. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this, this Roman question is, is, is interesting. I, um, in a, from a different angle, dwelled on punishment simply because in my, um, earlier uh, academic work I, I, I worked on Montesquieu a bit and um, of course punishment is featured very prominently and 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 there he he takes care to to note that um, you know the Romans were pretty pretty darn harsh like the, the law of the the 12 tables the the, the, the law of the Decembers right that uh, I think that uh, you know one one such example is that um, you burn your neighbor's heap of corn and the punishment is to be burned alive 
you know um it, it's, drawing it's, and quartering in drawing and quartering right? this sort of stuff the famous oh, regicide that nicole <laughs> talks about right i mean um you, you would think that the move to a, a time sort of stamped um punishment it does sound more humane but um that that doesn't quite work out um i mean the the obvious example is that if you're an ill individual who's going to die soon um a, a short sentence is a life sentence yeah um, and that doesn't touch on any, on, on all kinds of uh, uh, cruelty but this gets into um a certain complication and that's that you know time of course moves in a strict sense for everybody the same days, months, years, et cetera, et cetera. They all move along, but um, not all of us have quality time. Some of us um, have to work just to get by um, and are assigned lower dollar values for a time. There are gendered um, distinctions on how time is spent, you know? Um, so uh, set processes rooted in demarcations of time. Don't take the finer details into consideration. Um, and I guess the question is a big one. Um, how does that bode for equal justice if we if we don't dwell on these finer distinctions or, or finer circumstances, uh, finer details? Yeah, um, and that's a really key question. So you're right. Um, the clock ticks at the same rate for everybody, but in fact, our circumstances dramatically um, uh differentiate how we experience that time or what it what it means to us even if the state is telling us you know there's there's simply you know 12 hours at stake um and i i think a couple and i'm still working in this area i'll have a new piece um that i'm workshopping and hope to send out soon that touches on different aspects of this excellent question but for the purposes of this book you know um I've, I, I, I kind of say, like, the state knows this. Like, we know that when we incarcerate people who are closer to the end of their lives, first of all, they likely pose no threat. And so if right. we are incarcerating to kind of um, keep people out of the public sphere, that's relatively pointless in almost all cases. Um, and, like, it's a huge percentage of their time left, so it, it just has a different type of value. And there are accommodations. So I'm not suggesting we handle this well, but there are compassionate release um, measures that some people are able to avail themselves of. And for um, for our discussion, I think what's important is to say is to recognize there's something at work there, which is a principle of recognition, but also a formula for determining when we might be able to make somebody or when somebody might be eligible for compassionate release. And in the book, I point out like it went, the the moments where we just use like a single deadline or one moment mm -hmm. in time are often our least democratic moments, and our most democratic moments are when we not only identify multiple points in time that matter, but also include other variables in what I call temporal formula. Huh. And the temporal formula is like um, where we might come out with it with a number at the end, but we've included more than just one way of thinking about somebody's time. So if we're thinking about naturalization, for example, um, somebody with a green card, the standard formula is five years of continuous residence, good moral character, um, you know, some proficiency to take the civics test and an interview evaluating, um, evaluating character. And like, that's a formula. 
Mm -hmm. And we know it's a formula because if you marry a U.S. citizen, the, there's something about that marriage that makes us trust you more and we reduce the, lot, the um, permanent residency period, the right. continuous residency period. And if same is true if you are a member of the U.S. military, if you enlist, and if you are on active duty, it goes down to zero, right? Mm -hmm. So you will become immediately eligible to naturalize. And, and so there's lots of information going into that. You know, it says a lot about what we think about marriage, right? That marriage, mm -hmm. like, you know. It confers um, something special, right? Yeah, right. we don't change, we don't change the formula for employment. Right. <laughs> Work is something we also value in our society. Um, and yet we don't change the formula for work, but we change it for marriage. You know, there's, first of all, we're saying something. We're saying this is a kind of connection to your citizenship. Like what you're doing in a marriage is, is really, really very citizenly. Um, yeah. And we trust you more um, as long as we, you know, <laughs> rudely investigate your marriage. And <laughs> scout onto it while certifying that it is in fact a real marriage. Yeah. Um, but marriage itself is integral to citizenship and there's been lots of research showing that this is something we in fact think. So, so you know, um, time is can be arbitrary, but we can find ways to acknowledge the different si differently situated people, people's mm -hmm. experience of time in these formula if we choose to, to really like think about it and be concerned about doing things well. Right, right. So to come back round to the liberal democratic context, I just have a question about a term of yours. Um, uh, tell us what you mean by lived consent. Oh yeah. So I got you know I was just really interested in how this plays out in the founding era and the early years of the republic, and mm -hmm. um, I was kind of trying to illustrate. I was trying to first of all, assure myself that my intuition that time had political value, um, had, you know, that there was public evidence for this. And um, I was looking at what happens after the founding with, and drawing an analogy between these people that I mentioned earlier that had not been born into the allegiance of King James and, and people who... Um, who were in the U.S. after the founding, or at uh -huh. least during the founding, people who had been loyalists, who, so who fought against the founding of the United States, mm -hmm. and found themselves on the losing side, and also still here. Right. And the question is, like, and you know, I hope we're not facing a similar circumstance now, but it it may give people a sense of the stakes to just think, what does it mean? to have people walking around who took up arms and would have or possibly did kill people on your side in order to prevent the country from existing. And so these cases go to court. Um, one in particular out of New Jersey goes mm -hmm. to court and the judge um, is looking at this information like, oh, you're a loyalist <laughs> and you are. <laughs> what do we do with you? And the judge is like, well, I noticed, you know, you were, it's this guy's name is Daniel Cox. I noticed you were living in New Jersey during the time when New Jersey ratified the U.S. Constitution and state constitution. This is not something 
that you could have been unaware of. Everybody knew this was happening. It was widely, widely advertised. And it was a process. It happened over a specific period of time. And um, since you knew it, and you hung out in this country and in New Jersey and didn't vote with your feet and leave, we're, we're going to assume that you were going through the process of consenting to the US Constitution um, to the ratification of the U.S. Constitution and therefore consenting to your citizenship and you are a citizen. And so I, I you know, it's a set of months um, at stake and I say that, the, the, and the judge in the case, and there were other similar cases, very explicitly said, like, this is a time of special reasoning. You People were reasoning in public. You had to have, it was in the air, even if you didn't say anything, like, you had to have privilege. Um, and, you know, that period of time is, represents essentially the consent. You lived through the consenting and you have consented. Yeah. yeah. And I think it's a little bit different than Locke's, John Locke's tacit consent. It's not, I don't think, like, they're mutually exclusive or wildly different, but I think there's really something of value to the way these judges put it, which is you knew, you heard, being, yeah. staying, present and not leaving when lots of people went to Canada, for example, mm -hmm. or went back to, to England is um, an action and it is living your consent. Yeah. That's perfect. So as to egalitarianism, which we've sort of mentioned, um, why is it that um, equality is a weighty or perhaps too weighty, um, I think, as you put it, normative burden for temporal procedures and rules to fulfill, fulfill I should say? <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, we get started, like, using time because it's, it's better than some of the other options. So, like, we do not want to be game of charging people for citizenship. And, in fact, we don't do that. Uh -huh. There's a reason you don't charge people for some things. Um, there's there's a, a kind of impurity to charging um, money for certain things that we hold in particularly high or distinct esteem, and citizenship is among them. Um, and we were obviously quite committed to trying to break down aristocratic um, structures that um, made citizenship only accessible to people born into citizenship. That was purely practical, right? Like, there, this was, this was a, a, a country kind of, um, this is, you know, um, a country that was engaged in an imperial project to take as much land as possible, right. hold it, and remove the um, residents. Uh, who were indigenous people who've been there for a long time. And so what were you going to do? Tell people, come from Europe, and not only can you face uncertainty and violence and really harsh conditions, but we're going to treat you like you're lesser. Yeah. We had to, we had to remove barriers to people becoming citizens based on blood. So time is like good for that, right? Naturalization right. period, rather than saying, like, oh, you're, I see you are not pretty English. <laughs> no citizenship for you. Right. Um, but you asked about why it's problematic, and it's problematic because time's corruptible too. Mm. So it's we consider it corrupt to trade money for citizenship, and time is better. And it really might be better, but it's not impervious to corruption. And uh -huh. 
So in that book, I build this argument that's basically pointing out that we often treat um, very, very similarly situated people's um, time as having different values. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's um, quite a, a statement because if what we've said, like cash, you know, you can acquire and if yeah. your money's no good here or I charge you extra for something, mm-hmm. I've definitely been unfair, but I haven't really um, kind of communicated anything about what I think of you. But if I say, all right, um, something's happening during a, the, a period of time when we incarcerate somebody, and like we don't really agree, there's no agreement on why we incarcerate people. We might incarcerate people to you know, protect society for a while and, mm-hmm. and kind of assure ourselves that we've really like hit home. We might incarcerate people because we think that they're um, being penitent. We might incarcerate people to try and improve their characters. Mm-hmm. Um, hope people can hear in my voice, you know, calling <laughs> back in my head. But um, if, regardless of what it means, if we say, hey, you, mm-hmm. who committed an offense that has to do with um, powder cocaine, you're going to have to pay with three years. And oh, you, person who committed offense involving rock cocaine, it's 12 years for you. Yeah. When we know there's no distinction, we understand this was a facially neutral rule intended to attempt to incarcerate black people, Absolutely. more black people for longer periods of time. Yeah. Uh, we're saying that like, oh, it takes 12 years for your character to go through the same process that the other person can achieve in three years. Yeah. That's a statement of moral inequality. And um, that's the point at which time is corrupted as a means of commensuration because we haven't commensurated. Yeah. Yeah. So coming, uh, we're, we, there's light at the end of the tunnel, Elizabeth, I promise uh, just a few more questions for you. Um, in the, in the penultimate chapter of this book, uh, you asked the question or you put a finer point on the question, why time um, and examine the reasons that it becomes important in political procedures. Of course, I mean, we've been touching on this, um, but it's in this context that you say that time's valuation is both instrumental and representational. Um, can you kind of unpack those, uh, those and maybe give an example or two? Sure. Um, I mean, I, I think like there's, there's instrumental concerns at stake when like we absolutely just have to find a means of transacting and, um, like we're going to need a number, right? Mm-hmm. So we, we there, there. It, it is in fact the case that, like, um, even though we could all fill out a survey and say, like, when we want to file our taxes, it's a large administrative state we're dealing with here, mm-hmm. and um, that might not be the best uh, reason for being inefficient. Just because, like, I didn't. I, super busy time for academics. I never, you know, have my act together in April. Right. Um, uh, So, you know, there's, there's that side of things. Um, But then like, it means time comes to mean things, right? And so like, we all now have common, I can make all the endless jokes to a US audience about tax day. At right. a particular time, like we identify it 
as something common that we're all going through. But we also have associations. Time like can can symbolize various things to us and represent things. Um, January 6th now means something it didn't used to mean before 2020. Um, and the, the same goes like, I think for certain quantities of time that we kind of see as um, very significant to um, a process that we're familiar with. Like um, there were really, really big fights over the, what, it's, what it communicated to make people wait a long period of time during like the time when the Alien Sedition Act went into it. Mm-hmm. We're kind of under discussion because these were very long waiting periods, and and um, so in the original discussions of the probationary period, somebody had gotten up and like banged up and been like, "We cannot make citizenship citizenship so cheap." But he wasn't right. referring to money; right. he was referring to like a very short waiting period. But at the yeah. same time, it was understood that not only is it just very difficult to live through twenty one years of waiting for full rights. But also that, like, you know, it really communicates something. Right, right. So let's uh, talk for just a moment maybe about um, the, 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 the brighter side of things, maybe. Like, how might time, rather, um, in your view, rectify injustices? So, I mean, I think that, first of all, you know, it's, fine to say that time is a very imperfect way of measuring these intangible things Mm -hmm. that we want to measure and it is still the best way we have to do that in some cases like Uh that if we start to give people you know purely qualitative citizenship tests Mm -hmm. well we have some sense from our own history about how that ends and it's not it doesn't end well um, so we can say like, you know, time, you know, waiting periods aren't great, but they're better than allowing somebody to design another literacy test of the sort that we saw go into effect at 19th century, early 20th century, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have to like keep an eye on our time and how people's time is being treated. And we have to always be thinking about how the, these formulae can be um, can be filters or um, can either protect people from our worst, the worst we have to offer, the worst of our inegalitarianism and um, mm-hmm. injustice, or protect people as much as possible. So it's not any better. It's really easy to just toss off a waiting period and be like, oh, you know, same yeah. for everybody, no big deal. We always have to be thinking about how that affects other people um, who maybe um, not have a lot of, they don't have a lot of political voice um, Mm -hmm. or using their voice is risky as in the case of undocumented persons whose time has essentially no value even if they've been in the country for decades um, or people who can't use their time um, freely because they're so um, in the midst of urgency all the time. Yeah, yeah. Now then, a final question to close. Um, I wonder what above all you would like readers to take away from this book. I think that um, because I, I, I realize now I'm, 
I'm, you know, in addition to my work on immigration, I'm building a career that's very focused on time. And I mm -hmm. think that what I'm reaching toward is uh, uh, the goal of recapturing a sense that our time has value, mm -hmm. immense value. It is, it is so finite and it is ours. And it, it, we should not um, thoughtlessly kind of um, accede to our time being treated poorly by the state or by our fellow citizens or by um, private entities that tend to um, do very well by exploiting our time in capitalist um, economies. Right. Our time has value um, and and we're gonna we're in a moment where we really have to fight to have that value acknowledged by the state, which is happy to give in to Intuit um, Intuit TurboTax lobbying yeah. to keep our um, IRS filing just as intensely right. demanding and complicated as possible, so that we pay for this to be done. Like our time has value. Yeah. It has value in the workplace and sh and and our time that we wish to use for our own goals um, has value. So I think that's one side of things, um, and that it's very easy to not kind of ask questions, especially I think in our in the U.S. It's 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 not um, our defaults to ask questions about mm -hmm. how our time is being treated. But, right. but there's a fight that we need to engage in to make sure that our time is treated with respect by everybody who um, might be in a position to make a claim on our time or in some way pollute. And I just want to refer now back to something you said early on, the quality mm -hmm. of our time, not just how much we have. And this is the direction I'm going next, but also the quality of our experience of that time and how much control we have over it. Well, Elizabeth Cohen, I very much appreciate your time, and I'm sure we all look forward to your future work on this theme. Um, thanks so much for being on Podopticon. I had a blast. Thanks. I did, too. Those were great questions, and oh, I um, goodness. really enjoyed them. So thank it you. Was, it was so much fun. Thank you very much. Thanks, as always, for listening. I hope you're around for the next one. Until then.